0: All right, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Every week we teach the Bible because we believe it's from God and we believe we can hear God's voice through His written Word. So we're going to study it. We're going to read it ourselves. We're going to discuss it. If you want to participate in the discussion, that's fine. If you don't want to participate, then that's just fine. You can just be a fly on the wall and and listen in. It's a good time to ask questions, though. It sure is. But our passage this week is Mark chapter 12 verses 28 through 34. If you're using one of the Blue Bibles on the center of your table, it is page 941. Next week, we will be looking at a shorter passage. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 37. So write that down in your worship guide, if you would, and spend some time reading that for next week. It is a rich and deep passage. Next week, there's a whole lot in just a few verses. So, last week when Chuck taught on last week's passage, he said, here we are on Sunday and it's Tuesday again. What did he mean by that? I thought he said it very well and very briefly and clearly, and um, I can learn from that. But he said, this is Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. The passage that we're going to read and discuss and learn from today is just about three or four days before he died. It's Tuesday. And this is our fourth Sunday, learning from the Bible what happens on Tuesday. And believe it or not, we have probably five more Sundays before we're finished on Tuesday. Most of us feel like Monday's a long day. But for Jesus, this last week, Tuesday was a very, very long day. And this week in our passage, we're going to be introduced to a group of people called the scribes. Last week, we had Pharisees which were religious leaders, we had Herodians, which were politicians, and then we had uh, Sadducees, which was another group of religious people. Well, this week we have scribes, and the scribes are kind of like the Harvard Law professor. Anybody in here go to Harvard? I didn't. I didn't. Dwight did. (laughs) And, okay, these are the types of people that none of us in here can hang with. Okay, these are the type of people who lead doctorate-level programs. They're really good at the fine print. They're really good at most, many of them are lawyers, and they also do a lot of writing to preserve what is written from one generation to the next. They're some of the smartest, sharpest people that you will ever meet. So this week and the next two weeks, Jesus is going to have some interaction with this group called the Scribes, and they are a pretty sharp crew. Um, And what we have in this passage is another person coming up to ask Jesus a question. And at the beginning of the conversation, their intent or their motivation is not good. It's not right. right? Mark doesn't say much about their motivation, but Matthew tells the same story from the same day of Jesus' life. And Matthew goes in a little bit more to the details. Matthew tells us that he came to ask Jesus this question to test him. And we've seen that before. We saw that on two different occasions last week. We saw that the previous week. And that's what Jesus' life has been like. People are trying to get him to say something that will ruin his ministry, that will destroy his reputation or his credibility. And one after another, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, you know the front of the lineup in the baseball game, and everyone hits grind balls. And it's of one commentator, Tim Keller, said that Jesus is like that perfect infielder. He's like that perfect guy on second base. He's like that perfect shortstop. And one grind ball after another gets hit his way, and he catches every single one of them, and he quickly throws it to first, and he gets them out every single time, and no hit gets by him. Nothing gets by him at all. So today's passage, let's read it together, and then we'll transition to our discussion. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what we always do is we take a few minutes to read this passage to ourselves, read it through two or three times, When the table leader decides it's the right time, uh, he or she will begin your discussion. And we're just, this is kind of like a chance for you to just discover things in the scripture for yourself, and if you're comfortable and you want to share them with others, then please do. But we want to ask the questions, what does the passage say? What does the passage mean? What should I do in response? And is there anybody I can share this with? Is there any good news in this passage that I need to give to someone else that's in my life? And so, uh, let's take some time, read it yourself, and uh, we'll jump into the discussion in just a few minutes. Mark chapter 12, um, I like this one. This one makes my life simpler. Who likes simplicity in their life? I have to fight for it every single day, and these verses just kind of help me do that. So, verse 28, I'll read verse 28 and 29. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's stop there. Hear. You listening? Can you hear me? Are you? Is it going in one ear and out the other? Because that's not hearing. Hearing is letting it come in and letting it stay there. It's interesting to me that Jesus starts His response uh, with this idea of hear. And if you look at the verb tense in both the New Testament, where this is recorded in Mark, and in the Old Testament that Jesus is quoting, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, it's an imperative. It is a command by just the very nature of the grammatical structure of this word. Here. Now, this tells us a lot of things. One of the things it tells me is that I can't wake up one day and just decide who God is. It also tells me that I can't wake up one day or or maybe have a really good day and feel like today, oh, God is good, and because I feel that way, He is. It, It doesn't mean... This idea of of us listening and hearing and, and us having to learn who God is from the outside, it means that I can't assume that God is bad because my life's a wreck. I cannot create God in my own image. But here we see that God's command is to hear. O Israel, those are His people. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, for the Jewish people, and Jesus was Jewish, but for the Jewish people, and, and even for Christians in the early church, this idea of having one God, that's weird. That's strange. That's different. I know what it's like to, for people to think that you're weird. Okay? Food line, yesterday. One grocery cart full. Then one of those little training baskets full. And this Evangeline was pushing the training basket. People are looking at you like, it's not normal. <laughs> You're weird. Okay, I mean, the, the Jews were weird. They were strange because they didn't have a lot of gods that they had to keep happy. There was one God. They knew him by several different names Yahweh, Jehovah. And even within the name of Jehovah, there were several titles that even went behind that. But Jesus starts here for several reasons. And one of those reasons is is that He wants them to know, and He wants us to know today, that you can't make God anything you want Him to be. That God is who He is. And He would be that way even if you drop dead today. You are not going to change God. But He is who He is. He said it thousands of years ago as, I am who I am. Nobody made me. I am. So here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I see the word all four times in there. I think this is important. And this was not a new idea. If you're familiar with the Bible and if you're familiar with the story of the Jews, uh, over a thousand years before this, God had given His people a law and lots of commands. And here Jesus is summarizing that law. But Jesus is not coming up with anything new. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which is one of the places that Moses gave God's law to the people, he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Does that sound familiar? Amen. So we get to verse 31. The second is this. The second what? It's the second greatest command. Loving the Lord our God is the greatest commandment. Well, Jesus says there's a second great commandment, and that is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And even in this, we've heard it before. Leviticus 19:18, Moses says, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." Again, this is not a new idea. So I want to ask the question today. What is love? <laughs> what is love? There's a lot of different answers out there in today's world. I could go and interview people on the street, and we would get a lot of different answers. And if I would have had more time this week, I probably would have done that, just as like a case study to get some ideas. Some of us in here have a good understanding of this. Some of us in here today, we don't have a good understanding of this. It's a very uh, uh, big question. But I want to kind of boil it down to a few simple things today. What is love? Is it that feeling you get when somebody does something nice for you? Is it that feeling you get when you went out on the fourth date with so-and-so and you just think, this is the one? Is it that feeling you get when you become a parent and hold your kid for the first time or on your wedding day or when you get engaged or whenever it might be? Is it that feeling you get or is it that action that you do when you serve somebody and help someone or have compassion on them? The easiest answer to this question of what is love is answered in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 8 and 16. It's very simple. God is love. The Bible says, God is love. So the Bible tells us that love is not merely an emotion or a feeling. Okay? Now, are there feelings and emotions associated with love? Absolutely. And those... In many cases, when there's no sin involved, those are good. Those are very, very good. And I'll get to that more in a moment. But love is an action. And I know this because when I think about the most popular verse in the Bible, this is what it tells me. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you've come up in church, you've probably heard that before. God so loved the world. Okay, so God is love and he so loved the world. What did his love drive him to do? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that we could be saved if we believe in him and trust him for salvation. So God's love motivated him towards action. Okay, action is associated with love. I also think about this verse was verse 30 where this greatest command another reason I know that love is an action is because it's a command Jesus is not going to command a feeling nobody commands feelings I, I, I you know I, I give my kids instruction I'm not going to tell them how to feel at least I try not to Sometimes if I ain't feeling right, I might bark at them and try to hush them, you know, shut them down, and that's not good, that's not right. But what I'm trying to say is that we know that love is a feeling, more than a feeling, because it is a command. It is something that we are to do. Its primary focus is on our actions, not our feelings. But is love... um, If you do something nice for someone, does that mean you love them? Not necessarily. Just because you serve somebody, just because you have compassion on somebody, it doesn't mean that it was motivated by love. It can be motivated by other things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have what we call, a um, it's known as the love chapter. It's read at many weddings. It's read at a whole bunch of different things. Really, the context of these verses is about the local church gathering and the church family life. But one of the things that it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that if I could speak all the languages of the earth and if I didn't have love for people, I would be a clanging cymbal. Just think about that energized bunny right behind your head go boom. You know, someone who is amazing and maybe a charismatic personality and wonderful, if they don't love people, you know, then all that amazingness doesn't really amount to anything. Paul says that if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I knew everything, and if I had enough faith to move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. He says if I give everything to the poor or even sacrificed my body, I could brag about it, but if I don't love people when I do those things, then I've gained nothing. So I know from reading this that love is not just a feeling, and I know that love is not just an action, but love has to do with an inward disposition of the heart, the mind, the soul, and our strength, as we see in verse 30, and out of that flow actions. You can have actions without the love, but you can't really have love without the actions. Let me go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. It may be familiar to you. that's some simple basic bible teaching on love right there so then we get you know let's look at the second greatest commandment a little bit more love your neighbor as yourself what does that mean and and this came up at our table and i was glad it did but does that mean that you have to love yourself is is loving yourself do you have to love yourself before you can love other people The Bible says, love God and love your neighbor. It kind of assumes that you love yourself. But does it command that you love yourself? And what does loving yourself mean? I just asked like six questions. We could talk about that all day. And in our world today, particularly in psychology class and and Dr. Phil and Oprah, what they'll tell you is that you do have to love yourself. And they'll talk about the importance of self-esteem. And our kids in public schools, self-esteem, you've got to feel good about yourself and all this stuff. I don't have time to go into this as deeply as I would like to today, but I want to say this. That if you focus on loving yourself, and if you focus on raising your self-esteem up, you're going to become one of the most self-centered people on the planet. The Bible does not command you to love yourself it assumes that you take care of yourself with your basic needs. And you can look at Ephesians 5, where it talks about a husband and a wife, and the husband cherishes his wife, and as he loves her, he nourishes her. Uh, or he, he, um, he, it talks about, it's chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, but it talks about um, taking care of yourself. The Bible doesn't command you to love yourself, but it assumes that you will take care of yourself. You're going to do what you need to do to eat. It's an assumption. And so we don't need to like focus all of our energy on this assumption, but that's what Dr. Phil will do and these self-esteem gurus will do. The Bible nowhere commands you to love yourself. It assumes that you're going to take care of yourself, just like it assumes that you've got two arms and two legs just like it assumes that you're breathing air into your lungs and coming out. It's a given. You're going to do what you need to do to take care of yourself. Here's the problem with people who put an emphasis on self-esteem is you've got to look at yourself so much and you constantly wonder, am I doing it right enough that you're looking at yourself so much you fail to look up at God. And when you fail to look up at God, you have nothing beautiful to focus and to center your life on. See, God, he is lovely. Me, I'm rotten and broken inside. And if I look at myself constantly, then I'm going to forget what Jesus did on the cross. And if I forget what Jesus did on the cross, then I'm going to be consumed with my own world and my own kingdom. And let me tell you what, my own world and my own kingdom is not the kingdom that I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. So let's move on. There's more to that. Ask me if you have questions. I've got some good resources I can send your way that have kind of helped me think through this a little bit. So who is our neighbor? Who's your neighbor? (laughs) Yes. I believe our neighbor is anybody that God puts in your life. Now, you can't equally be there for every single person in your life. Read Luke chapter 10. Look at the story of the Good Samaritan. It's quite helpful in figuring out some of this. But your neighbor is whoever God put in your life. Who do you see every day at work? Who lives in your house with you? Do you have family that lives nearby or lives out of town? Who are you committed to or obligated to? These people are our neighbors. Occasionally, it's going to be the stranger. You're going to see a need, and you're going to have the opportunity to fill that need. Do you have margin in your life or room in your life for a stranger, someone that you're not planning to do something for? Can you adjust your plans for this person like the Good Samaritan did? Now, sometimes in our lives, we what you say, Miss Constance, whoever's in our life? Is that what you said? Yes. Okay, so whoever's in our life. How many of y'all have enemies in your life? I got some. I've got some. Now, I would like to think that I'm not as mad at them as they are at me because I want to forgive them and move on, and I hope that's true in most circumstances. But Jesus said something about your enemies that is re- in Matthew chapter 5 that is really very relevant to this teaching. He said this, You have heard that the law says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. How do you love your enemy? How do you love your neighbor? If you got an enemy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put a reminder in your phone to pop up every day or get an index card and put it on your fridge. I know knew one girl in college. She put her prayer requests all over her mirror and she stuck magnets to it and And when she got ready in the morning, she prayed for those people. Put something in your life. Let me pray for that person that I absolutely can't stand. That will change your heart if you start praying for them. So we need to do that. Some of us, if we're going to love our neighbor well, then we need to quit being so stingy. Because all of us do this a little bit, but some of us do this a whole lot. We only are part of other people's lives to see what we can get out of. We're like a parasite. We live on something, and we don't want to let it go, because if we had to let it go or do without, even for a brief moment of time, we would starve to death. We would die. We would have no reason for living. We need to be needed so bad. And instead of being a part of a group of people to give, we're part of a group of people to take. And I have to be a part of them, and I have to have what they have, because if I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And what happens when we do that is we look for them to fill a need, when we primarily need to be looking at God. And we're almost expecting them to be God for us, because God is wanting to heal the hurts in our soul, but yet we're looking for that relationship with that person to heal that. Psychologists call this codependency. It's the need to be needed. But it masks itself and it charades around as love. But some of us are takers, and we need to be givers. Some of us, there's this. What one of the things that keeps us from loving our neighbor is that we don't want anybody to be a part of our life. I told one person this week who, who doesn't go to any church at all, I said, look, the church needs you, and you need the church. If God is in you, then you need to be sharing your life with others. And stop hiding, because as long as you're hiding, you cannot fulfill the command of God. You just can't do it. So we get to verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and then we get to this, where Jesus says, there is no commandment greater than these. So love God, love your neighbor, and then he says, there is no commandment greater than these. In Matthew, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, or from this hangs Everything that's written in the law, all those other commands, the Ten Commandments and everything else, the sacrifices, all that stuff. i got a picture. It's one of my favorite pictures. But it's at our house here in Gatesville. Christian and Cadence are over at our house. And Cadence and my four oldest kids are on the swing. Christian is behind the swing and he's pushing them. And all, I guess, six of them are just smiling as much as they can. Well, we got this swing with five people on it got two chains that are holding it up. And without those two chains, what's going to happen to those swings and that swing and all those kids on it? It's going to come crashing down. Jesus says that on these two commands hang everything that is written in the law and the prophets. It's kind of like an airplane. You need the entire airplane to fly for the most part, right? But if you take the two wings off, it doesn't matter how good everything else does. It's not going to work, is it? So Jesus summarizes the entire Old Testament on these two commands. And if you take some time and you look at the Ten Commandments and how it's broken up, you'll see the first of the four Ten Commandments correspond to the greatest commandment that Jesus gives here to love God. And if you look at commandments number five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, they correspond to the love your neighbor as yourself. So these two commands just summarize so much. I told you it makes it simpler. If we Love God and our neighbor. And we do that in everything. Then we fulfill those commands. And this is one of those times, I'm really glad I just got one God. I think about King Solomon sometime. He had 700 wives. How in the world are you going to... I'm not going to say keep all them happy, but you know that is, I think, a goal of every husband. You want to keep your spouse happy. How did Solomon do that? I'd a whole lot rather have one wife. And I think about that. You know, I'm glad I don't have to keep Zeus happy and Diana happy and Hera happy and all those Greek and Roman gods that my kids have been learning about in ancient history at school. So I'm glad we have one God. And this God, everything He wants from us is summarized in these two commands. Look at verse 32. Verse 32. Okay, Jesus is done. The scribe responds. And the scribe says this. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe agrees. One of the observations made at my table was... was, Awesome. It was one I hadn't thought of all week, and for weeks, as I've been thinking about this passage. And that is, maybe this, you know, this scribe responds positively, and the other religious leaders had not done that. But maybe this scribe was not questioning Jesus for malicious intentions. Maybe he wasn't trying to make him look stupid or look bad or to get him in trouble with the other group. Maybe. He heard what Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world, and he just knew the law well enough to know that the Messiah will affirm everything that is written in the law. Maybe his heart motive was pure in this the whole time. Okay, That, that was a new idea for me, and I, I think that's, that's probably pretty right on. But what we know is at the end of this story is that this scribe agrees with Jesus which is very different from everyone else who had questioned him up to this point. Verse 34 says, When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. (laughs) He answered, Well, he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. And one of the things that the scribe pointed out was that loving God and loving your neighbor is better than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices you could give. See, life in the Jewish world was very different from life in the Christian world. We have one sacrifice, and Jesus, he gave himself as a permanent, eternal sacrifice. Only one is needed to cover all sin, past, present, future. Hey, that's good news. Before Jesus came, they had to bring sacrifices regularly. There were some big ones that had to be done once a year, but then there were other ones that had to be done more often than that. Well, This scribe is saying, that it would be better to love than to just have to constantly bring things to God so that God will accept you. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I love the end of verse 34. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. (laughs) And what we're going to see in the next couple weeks is Jesus starts questioning them next. But this is it. No one else is going to try to test him anymore. So Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Let me ask you today, are you a part of the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus mean by that? Jesus isn't telling this scribe, you're getting pretty close, but you got to try harder. What this man is seeing and what Jesus is trying to say here is that entering the kingdom of God is a matter of devotion and affection and love and desire that springs up from somewhere deep down inside. Yeah. Being a part of the kingdom of God doesn't merely have to do with just checking off all the boxes every day to make sure you didn't do anything that He said not to do. Okay, now those those rules are important, but they are not first and foremost. I have had seasons of my life, particularly the first six to eight years of my Christian life, where All of my life was about not doing A, B, and C. And we all got our A, Bs, and Cs. I knew what I struggled with, and I felt like if I just stay away from those things, then God's going to be happy with me. And what that did was it did not allow me to have any love or true, genuine devotion or affection for the Almighty God. Let me ask you today, is your entire life about avoiding A, B, and C, whatever your A, B, and C might be. Being a part of the kingdom of God has to do with affection and love for God and joy in God. Being a part of the kingdom of God is one where you have relationship with Him. See, this whole thing about going to heaven and getting to know God and all this stuff, it's not about crossing all your T's, dotting all your I's, and not doing A, B, and C. It's not about the rules. It's about relationship about a relationship with Jesus. I grew up in church till I was 17 years old, and all I ever thought things were about were rules, rules, rules. And when I came to this church late in high school, my, my senior year of high school, I realized someone taught me, a few people taught me, that, that all of life is about a relationship with Jesus. Amen. And I don't stay away from A, B, and C because I'm worried about going to hell. Now I stay away from A, B, and C because I love God. I don't want to do those things because they will dishonor God. It will displease Him. Our God is a lawgiver, but not primarily a lawgiver. He is primarily Lord and Savior. And from that flow His commands. Are you like this scribe who knows, what God wants most is your love and your affection? Or are you like all the Pharisees that we've read about in previous chapters that are just trying to go to church, give their tithe, make sure they do everything right? Are you so worried about what you're not supposed to do that you neglect what you are supposed to be doing? If you struggle with these You need to read this. I'm going to plug this book, sorry. Accidental Pharisees. I haven't read it all yet, but I've read parts of it. I need to read this a few times. Is this something you struggle with? You need to read that book. You need to talk to me. I'll share my struggles with you. But these struggles are real. And what God wants most from us today is our love. There was a man named John Owen in the 17th century. He was a Puritan pastor um, up in New England. And he wrote a few books, but one of his most popular ideas was the idea of of the right way to conquer sin. Because we can sin today, and it can feel good, right? You can think about your former life before Jesus, and it feels good. Here's what John Owen said. He says, if you're struggling to walk away from sin, if you're struggling to give up the pleasure and the enjoyment that you can take in a certain sin, then the only way or the best way to conquer that is to replace the pleasure that the sin gives you with a greater joy or a greater pleasure. And what John Owen noticed was that the people in his life that he was pastoring at the time, they were so consumed with what they weren't supposed to do that they could never look at the one who they were supposed to look at. Because this command to love God, the command of the writer of Hebrews, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. It's real easy to not do that and say... I don't want to think about pink. I don't want to think about pink. I don't want to think about pink. And and we think about pink so much that all we see is pink everywhere. But if we think about Jesus, He is going to satisfy us so much and the joy that He offers us so freely in the Gospel will overcome with any bad habit or with any sin that you have ever struggled with in your life. Are you struggling with sin today? Focus your affection and your love on God. Look to him. Quit worrying about what you're not supposed to be doing and look at the one whom you're supposed to love. And what happens is is your desire and your affections change. You see how beautiful he is. You see how lovely he is. You see how wonderful he is. And your thinking changes. And all of a sudden you're like, why am I ever going to go back to A, B, and C? Why am I ever going to take another drink? Why am I ever going to go down that road that ended me, got me in prison? Why am I ever going to lie again or try to cheat again? Why am I ever going to do that when I can have God? Because He brings me such joy that I never had in my old life. Never, ever, ever had before. Here's the good news. You can't obey the law and be saved. There's someone who did that perfectly for you. This scribe is realizing that the law that he knows so well cannot save him. That the sacrifices that he and the entire Jewish people were bringing God for all those years were not enough to bring them into the kingdom. But that life in the kingdom is a life of love. Our life with God is one, while there are rules, it is not primarily about rules. Our life with God is primarily a relationship with God. And as that relationship develops, it becomes so much easier to follow all the rules. So I hope I've simplified things for you today. makes it simpler for me. If anything that I've shared with you today is a brand new idea, tell me afterward. I would love to hear where you're at and hear your story in that. If you want me (laughs) or somebody else to pray with you, let me know or grab somebody. And we will do that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and Your truth. I pray that we would never look at You... Why, well, I guess, God, if this is new for anybody here, I pray that we would never look at You the same way again. But that we may approach You as a loving Savior. And I pray that our love for You would just increase and go up more... And more and more. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.